Yeah, I hope you'll take your bulletin. And everybody, we put a pen on every chair today because uh, we have a few blanks to fill in. I'm not usually the type of guy who likes to fill in the blanks. These are not a fill-in to my message. These are a reflective thought for you. And I have four questions for you that we'll use to, to fill the blanks. You know, when I was a boy, our pastor used to say the same prayer before he preached every Sunday. And I used to think, you know, oh, brother, here goes this kind of monotonous, you know, canned type of prayer. And, um, and I can't tell you why, but I just feel this overwhelming sense to pray this prayer right now. So would you pray with me? And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hey, I'd like you to write right in that first line there, if you have your pen and your, your bulletin. Would you just write your first name? Nobody's going to see this. You're going to take it home. If you just want feel more comfortable putting your initials, that's fine. But uh, just, uh, just put, some, put your name down on that first line. I'm not a fortune teller, but I want to tell you something about the name of the person that you just wrote down. That person lives every day with hopes and with dreams and with aspirations and with expectations, both professionally, spiritually, maybe relationally or, or physically. And something else I know about that person whose name you just wrote down is there are some things that that person just loves to do. So would you take that next line, that second line, and just write something down that you love to do? Maybe it's a talent, maybe it's a skill or a hobby, some interest that you have. Something that when you do it, it just exhilarates you. Now, if I were to ask you what you thought I wrote down on mine, I know a lot of you would say golf. But I didn't. The thing I love to do is I love to go on vacation with my family. And I was just thinking about Dave and Carrie and their family just coming back from vacation this week. For me, our family vacations in Bayhead, New Jersey, two blocks from the Atlantic Ocean, were the highlight of every summer for me. Being with my sisters and their families and my mom and dad, it was just the best. We laughed. We had incredible meals around a big, huge table. We played cards with the queen of Canasta, who's my mother. And anybody who beat her just felt so great about themselves. We body surfed. We had our annual family miniature golf tournament. We would walk on the boardwalk and play the carnival games. We'd go to our favorite ice cream parlor. And I know everybody has what they think is the best ice cream parlor in the world. Ours is. Hoffman's in, uh, in Mount or Point Pleasant. We went to have sub sandwiches at the original Jersey Mike's because that's where it started in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, right next door to Bayhead. We would usually be there on Father's Day, so we would get to watch the U.S. Open tournament together. And every day my wife would walk on the beach and she'd collect weathered glass and she could be gone for three hours at a time. And I had a little route in those days where I would run my three-mile run. And we would tell stories about what happened the previous year. And we'd catch up with our families. And we would just give each other space if you needed space to take a nap or, or just to lay in the sun. And so family vacation for me, no matter where it is, is always what I love to do. Now, maybe some of you at surfing or biking or cooking or hiking. Now, in that third blank in your bulletin, how about writing down a dream that you have never fulfilled? 
What would that be? Is it climbing a certain mountain? Writing a book? Seeing the Lakers win another title? In my case, seeing the Cubs win a title? <laughs> you know, when I talk to people about their big dreams, uh, most of them I find to be fairly simple. Things like, I just want to be happy, or I just want to lose weight. I just want good things for my kids. Or I just want you know, faithful spouses to have great marriages. And I want fathers to never have heart attacks. And I want hard workers to get well paid. And I want couples who want children that they'd always be able to have them. And there are all these kinds of dreams that many of us carry. But in reality, something else I know about the person whose name you wrote down on the top of that page, that from one time or another, you have been disappointed with life. Life hasn't lived up to your expectations. Back in the 1990s, late 1990s, I read a book by Phil Yancey entitled Disappointment with God. And uh, I thought when I saw the title of that book, that's going to make a great sermon someday. And, uh, and I have been around a lot of people who are being disillusioned and disappointed right now. And uh, some close to me. And so I know that the person whose name you wrote at the top of that program, whether you're a Christ follower or not, whether you're just starting out in your faith journey or you've been in the journey for a long time, I know that sooner or later you will experience disappointment with God. And I don't know what your disappointment is, but I know that we've all been disappointed by something. A disappointment has a way of raising troubling questions, usually troubling questions about God. Is there a God? And if there is one, why doesn't he do something? Is he greater than my disappointment? And the truth is there are some who maybe are here today who have trouble believing in God at times. You know, I used to think that people that didn't believe in God were either just stubborn or being prideful or they just thought they were cool to say that they didn't believe in God. But I have to be honest with you, the more I talk to those people who are agnostics and they unpack their life experience, they usually have some pretty good reasons why they question that God really does care for them. And so today I want to offer some not simple answers or glib cliches, but hopefully some, some things, that steps that might help us in dealing with disappointments and hurts and perhaps fears or confusion that we might be experiencing. And I think one of the reasons that I love the Psalms so much is because they're just so shockingly real. The Psalms are actually a collection of prayers gathered over 2,500 years. And I believe one of the reasons that the Psalms are in the Bible is to teach us how we can express our raw, unedited disappointments and hurts and fears and also our confusion to God. How we can dispense with our polite little positive God talk that we sometimes do. Because I don't think God wants our sanitized or dishonest prayers. I think he wants us to be authentic with him from our heart. And sometimes that involves raising our voice and using words that we wouldn't use in public or definitely not in church. And one of the things I think that it's interesting is scholars have broken the Psalms down into different categories. Psalms, by the way, are songs. In Scotland, the hymn book is the Psalms. They just put different tunes to every Psalm. But there would be Psalms of praise, there'd be Psalms of thanksgiving, there'd be enthronement Psalms, there were worship Psalms, and the scholars would use all these different genres and they had one for the most common type of psalm, and that was the Psalms of Lament. I guess you could say they were a nice way of saying they were complaint psalms. 
I, I made a mistake. I said that Latin in your Friday briefing meant complaint. It, no, it means actually weeping. So these are psalms of weeping. And if you're reading through the psalms, you know when you come to a psalm of lament. Because you just feel like there's just someone there who is just kicking and punching and banging and screaming at a locked door. The psalms of lament are so intense. How do you talk to God when something has so completely broken your soul that you just think, I'll never recover from this? The Psalms of Lament show us how to do it. And I'd like to walk through that with you today. They teach us how you can love God and you can feel enormous hatred towards God at the same time. And Psalm 77 was written by a guy who's probably a lot like you and me. His name was Asaph. And he's in a season of extreme disappointment in his life. And apparently he senses that God is just not being responsive. That he's not recognizing the pain that he has. He's not recognizing the needs in his life. So notice Psalm 77 starting at verse 1. And I want to read it how I think the psalmist probably prayed it. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. And I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. Ever felt that way? Now, Asaph doesn't tell us what his disappointment is. It might have been a terrible loss. It could have been a uh, life-threatening illness. It might have been a breakdown in his marriage. It might have been a betrayal of a friend. It could have been a financial loss. We just don't know. But we do know that he was crushed by this disappointment and it just tore him up inside. In fact, look at verse 4. You kept my eyes from closing. I think he's saying there, I couldn't sleep at night. I lay in my bed. I stare at the ceiling all night long. And then he continues, I was too troubled to speak. I can't even talk about it. I can't even put into words my disappointment. Now, I just want to pause here. Because maybe you know someone who's going through a huge disappointment in life right now. And what's one of the first things that the followers of Jesus usually tell a person that they ought to do when they're going through a time of disappointment? Pray. Oh, you just need to pray. Just pray. Well, I don't think that ASAP was a rookie spiritual believer here. He's not a beginner in his faith. Because when his disappointment hit, that's exactly what he did. Verse 1, it says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to the God to hear me. So he tried prayer and it didn't work. Friends, Psalm 77, I believe, is revealing some of the glib and superficial advice that we often give to one another in a time of great discouragement. We see a person whose heart has just been ripped out, who's experienced a disappointment in life. And what do we say to them? Just pray about it. Now listen, I'm not saying that praying is bad. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want to lose my job. But, but Asaph prays and he doesn't sense God is doing anything about it. He doesn't sense any answers. And it leads him to some really haunting questions about God. About who God is and what is God capable of. And why isn't he doing something in my situation? Questions that when you read them, you're almost shocked to see them in the Bible. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has, he promised, has his promise failed for all time? In other words, is he a promise breaker? 
Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? I mean, these are pretty raw questions that people who are disappointed with God sometimes endlessly wrestle with. So I just want you to know you're not the first person in history to ever have these kind of thoughts. C.S. Lewis was married later in life. He enjoyed marriage with his wife, Joy. They were only married for four years. Two years into the marriage, she became sick and eventually died of cancer. Lewis wrote in his journal about his grief, and later it was published in a book called A Grief Observed, which he, didn't, he used a pseudonym to publish the book because he didn't want people to know that he was really grappling with these great questions. And it was only later on that the book was published under his real name. Listen to what he wrote in his journal. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Those are the words of a husband in grief. Maybe you've asked those same questions that Asaph is asking. Why is God silent? Where is God in the midst of my situation? And I'll tell you something, the longer I've been a pastor, the more skilled I've become at saying three words. I don't know. I don't know why some people are endlessly unemployed. I don't know why innocent children in Africa get AIDS. I don't know why a six-year-old gets leukemia. I don't know why some daughters and sons get abused in homes that should protect them. I don't know why God gave you the parents he gave you. And the older I get and the longer I follow Christ, the greater sense I have that there are many things that I just don't know and I can't explain. There's a word in the New Testament that describes this kind of feeling. It's called mystery. There's a fourth blank on your program. And here's what I'd like to ask you to write there. And I hope you'll be very specific. Write down the mystery in your life that you can't figure out. Or in other words, maybe the thing that has most disappointed you in life. Maybe it's the thing that you might never be able to understand, the thing that you might never be able to get over, the mystery. You know, the Israelites devoted more psalms to complaining than any other single category. And I think we can learn from the psalms about how to deal with disappointment, about dealing with the thing that you just wrote down. Ray Stedman, the former pastor of Peninsula Bible Church, says, when you feel like God is absent, the first practice you should engage in is to complain. I thought that was interesting. That might be good news for some of you. How many of you either know how to complain or you're willing to learn? <laughs> you know? I know a few people who I think complaining is their spiritual gift. But, uh, but, but this kind of, is kind of an interesting thing to me because in our day, in, in contemporary Christianity, we don't get taught to do this very much. 
There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Alan Davis, and he's written about the ancient world and about these complaint prayers. And listen to what he writes. In no other culture did people pray to their God or gods in language that was so frank and rude. I put a couple of examples there from Psalm 44. You know, God, why are you sleeping? God, why do you hide your face? Lord, you've crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. Why do you forge our, our misery? How long, O oh Lord, how long? And so what Davis says is, people of other ancient religions prayed. They made requests. They offered worship. They sometimes prayed for their God or gods to curse other people. But in all of the ancient world, only Israel prayed these kind of complaint prayers. And I think for a real good reason. And I love this next line. Because only Israel in all the ancient world believed that this great, sovereign, mysterious God who made the heavens and the earth cares that I'm in pain and can be expected to do something about it. Only Israel has a God like that. And so they prayed these prayers of complaint a lot. Now, what makes them so powerful, what makes them a very important part of our spiritual life, I think, and is that this isn't just random complaining. Because anybody can just complain. The Psalms of lament are always addressed to God. Always. Quick aside here. Did you ever see the movie... Uh, called Bruce Almighty, Bruce Almighty with uh, Jim Carrey. He's not a very profound theological thinker, but at one point in the film, he's talking to the character who uh, is playing God, and that happened to be Morgan Freeman, and, and uh, he's told to pray, and so he's thinking about what would be an appropriate prayer. And he says, uh, I'll feed all the hungry people, and I'll bring peace to the world. And then he asks Morgan Freeman, how was that prayer? <laughs> And Morgan Freeman says, well, it's pretty good if you're running for Miss America. <laughs> One of the reasons why prayer dies is that we have these little polite prayers, and they're really not connected to what's going on inside of our lives. Of course, inside of me, there's a lot of junk, and there's mixed up motives, and there's messed up stuff, and there's, you know, there's not going to be an opportunity to really deal with that stuff if I'm not honestly, openly bringing it out before God. And so what starts out to be a passionately honest prayer, it's when you're indulging not in self-pity or martyrdom or passive resignation, but you're genuinely opening yourself up before God. And when you complain, it's, it's hoping that somehow God can be trusted. You're asking God to create the kind of condition in your life and in your heart that will make it possible for you to praise him again. And that's what happened to Asaph. And it doesn't happen right away. It may not happen overnight, but only, the only place that you really can meet God is in the reality of right now. And sometimes the reality is pretty messy and it's confusing. Now, I'll bet you didn't expect to hear this from the pulpit this morning. It may be for your spiritual growth that you need to learn how to complain more. Second thing, when God feels far away, you need to lean on other people. Don't go through God's absence alone. In the Old Testament, if you could think of one person who is maybe the most famous person of anybody in the Bible who suffered, who pretty much had his whole life wiped out, who do you think that would be? Job. Job. Yeah. And if you read the book of Job, you'll discover that much of the book of Job 
is in fact a complaint to God that keeps Job spiritually in the game. Job didn't suffer God's absence alone. He needed some people. Now listen, you've got to choose the people that you're going to lean on with care. Because the first person that Job's life that we read about was his wife that he leaned on. And after he lost everything, his children and his wealth and his health, he's sitting in an ash heap scraping his sores with broken pieces of pottery. And does anybody remember the advice that his wife told him? Yeah, Curse God and die. That would not have been too encouraging, would it? That wouldn't be a very good bumper sticker. You know, you don't see any cars driving around with that. That's not going to sell. Curse God and die. When trouble hits, I wouldn't make Mrs. Job your first choice of a leanee. If I'm going to be the leaner, I've got to choose a leanee with care. So after his wife, Job, in Job chapter 2, it says this, starting at verse 11. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that he had come, up, that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. I didn't put verse 12, it didn't make it in there. It was supposed to be 11 to 13, but uh, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads, which is a sign of great mourning. In verse 13, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, some of you know that Job's friends end up taking a lot of criticism, but I just want to ask you a question. Who do you have in your life that is so devoted to you that they would sit next to you for seven days and seven nights in silence during your time of trouble? When God seems absent, you need a few people to be fully present. People that you know will pray for you. People who will listen to you and your honest thoughts without judging you or coddling you. People who will point you back to God. And the key is, don't wait until trouble hits. Start now building those relationships. And if you lead a small group here, help the people in your group to learn to listen to each other. They may not be able to handle seven days of being silent in your group, but you could start with seven minutes. And this leads to a third practice. I didn't get this psalm into your study notes, but Psalm 46 has a great line. It's about world turmoil, and the psalmist famously says, Be still and know that I am God. I don't know how many of you would say that one of the problems that you face in your spiritual life is you just have too much quiet time, too much peace. When God seems absent, a lot of us go into overdrive. And we try to fill up our lives with noise and activity because that becomes pain avoidance. There is a time to stop drowning in action and in information and in noise and to just be still. Very often pain is when we need to be still the most. That's why they put you in the hospital so that you can just be still. Do your healing. And so oftentimes what we tend to do is we want to get up and get into things that will distract us so that we don't have to feel the hurt. And there comes a time when we don't need to read anymore and we don't need to try anymore and we don't need to fix anymore and we don't need to get any more advice. We just need to be still before God. One final thought. Last week when we had communion, we heard these words, do this to remember me. And this is exactly what Asaph does. Look at verse 11. 
I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. So you see what he's doing here. He's not praying, but instead he's focusing on who God is. And he's making sure that he has a clear picture about who God is. When we pray before we meditate on God, we usually are putting ourselves at the center of our prayers. I'm in trouble. I'm in need. I'm, in, I'm depressed. I'm in pain. I'm disappointed. I'm hurt. I'm afraid. I'm confused. I need a miracle for my problems. And Asaph began the psalm that way. I cried out to God. He didn't hear me. I couldn't sleep. I cry out. Nothing happens. And so he says, here I am in deep trouble, and God is silent, and he's unavailable, and he's not doing anything for me. But then in verse 11, something changes. Instead of focusing on his disappointment, he starts focusing on God who is greater than the disappointment. And he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles all day long. And in the following verses, what he does is he remembers a time in Israel's history when it seemed that for a while God was not doing anything because the Israelites were trapped at the Red Sea. You remember the Egyptians were coming. They're there at the sea. And you know that old... uh, Children saying, you know, can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it. <laughs> Got to go through it, you know. And they, they're in this deadly predicament, and God seems silent. And when that God who is greater than parted the waters and made a way for them, where there seemed to be no way, the psalm opened up with cry, with a cry of doubt and despair, And here's a man who's almost lost his faith because he thought that God was unreliable and disinterested and couldn't be trusted. And he looked at all the troubles around him and he was very honest about it. But he traced his way back from his despair, saying in verse 13, Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? And he tells us how he got there by thinking and meditating on the actions of God in history and on the unmistakable movements of God. And as he thought about this, he saw that he had a special purpose. God did. It was a redemptive purpose. And by the way, the restored people that he brought back. And that's always God's action. It's a characteristic of restoration. And he thought how many times that God had done this in the past. But there was one thing as he's thinking about all these things that really clicked with his particular issue. And I think it was in verse 19. I'm sorry I didn't put it in your notes. He remembered the cross of the Red Sea, and he says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were unseen. And we'll discover that when we're up against an emotional pressure, and especially in those difficult days when everything seems to go wrong and, and our faith is just tested to the max, As we think through the activity of God in our lives and also in the recorded acts of Scripture, I think we find that there is something there that maybe speaks to us more than anything else. And Asaph says, here I am. I was in trouble and God apparently wasn't doing anything. And by the way, C.S. Lewis says, if you're taught an illusion, you will become disillusioned. If you believe something that is about God that isn't true, then you will be disillusioned later on. And sometimes we think that God has made promises to us that he never made to us. Here's a promise from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay, so that's what your expectation should be. 
And now, as Asaph is thinking through this event of the cross of the Red Sea, he saw this as a parallel experience for him. Here were these people brought to the edge of the Red Sea. There's no visible way out. There's no human alternative to see. But God knew the answer all along. And his footprints were unseen as, as they went through the sea. And I don't know what you wrote in that last line. But I do know that the starting place for you to focus is not on the disappointment. But it's to focus on God who is greater than the disappointment. Why was God so unresponsive to the cries of Asaph? Why was he so silent? Why would God deliberately allow Asaph to go through a time of trial and doubt and disappointment? Well, disappointment is one of the greatest graduate schools that any of us will ever go through. And this is embarrassing for me to admit. It really is. But let me just tell you some of the things that I've learned the hard way when I have been through some of the, my, my broken world experiences that I don't know if I would have learned any other way and I think I'm still learning. It was through those experiences that I learned the importance of total truth-telling in relationships. Even when it's painful, even when I have to face uncomfortable things about myself. I've learned that I have an unhealthy work ethic that is motivated by several things. Insecurity, a need to succeed for my own self-image. You know how much my dad meant to me but I've compared myself to him and I have often felt like Daffy Duck compared to his preaching. And that's a responsibility God never intended to put on my shoulders. I've learned through my disappointing experiences that God didn't call me to be anybody else but Bill Crawford. And that's enough. And he holds me accountable to the gifts that he's given me. Nothing more, nothing less. And that was freeing for me. Through my life graduate school, I'm relearning the importance of balance and that it's not enough just to be spiritually healthy. You have to have physical health, mental health, and emotional health as well. I've learned the importance of some close friendships in my life where you have complete confidentiality and candid sharing and safety and acceptance. And some of you are probably saying, Bill, you had a lot to learn, didn't you? I did and I do. Deep down, I have this sense that I've just begun. And there's so much growth that God wants to accomplish in my life. Psalm 77 begins with a man who is paralyzed by disappointment. He's in an emotional pit with painful questions about God. He's on the brink of total collapse with his faith. But when he took himself out of the center of his prayers and he focused on who God is, the God who is greater, the God who is at work though his footsteps are unseen. The God who teaches us things in the desert that we couldn't learn any other way, his perspective's changed. And by the time you get to verse 13, he says, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. You know, in almost every prayer of Lament in the Psalms, there's a statement that expresses no matter how dark the circumstances are, no matter how much rage I felt toward God, no matter how much everything I feel tells me to just give up, I will not give up. And I pray that no matter what your disappointment, that you will complain to God. That you will find someone to lean on. 
that in the words of my grandma Dixie, you will hush up. (laughs) You'll slow down and be quiet. And that you'll remember either a time in your life or a time in the scriptures where God's activity was so unmistakably evident that even though right now you can't trace God's hand, you will trust his heart. Let's pray. And Father, for those whose struggles may be breaking their hearts right now and whose pathways have grown dim and they just can't see you, Spirit, help us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray and take our wordless groans and translate them into words that you understand. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.